This episode is sponsored by our Patreon. Stick around at the end to find out how you can help support the show. The story of a great flood threatening all life has been told in dozens if not hundreds of ways for thousands of years. Across the world, cultures spreading from as far as Russia's Siberian wilderness to the tip of South America tell of a time when waters covered the earth and only a select few humans and animals survived. If any of the many myths and legends told throughout the world has a claim to being universal, the story of the flood is clearly the number one contender. However, of all the places in the world where flood stories have been told, they have likely been the most influential and foundational in the cultures of the Middle East. It is from this region that almost certainly the most well-known flood story comes, that of the biblical figure Noah and his ark. But neighboring the ancient Israelites, a number of the oldest stories have come from Sumeria, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern-day Iraq. The most famous among these stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh, actually contains one of the earliest examples of a great flood story. Comparing the biblical story and the story from the Epic of Gilgamesh, one is able to discover striking similarities and sharp differences, telling the stories of two men who searched for meaning amidst the chaotic confusion of a murky, fog-covered, and flooded world. Each ancient story on its own provides a guideline for how one ought to find meaning in an all-too-often tragic world. When read together, however, these two ancient flood stories provide even greater answers for how to balance the earthly life and the life of the spirit. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. Almost certainly the most well-known flood story in the world is that of Noah and his ark. Shared by Jews, Christians, and Muslims, it is one of the earliest stories in the Bible, taking place not long after humanity's fall from grace. It is set in a time when men are giants on earth, like the heroes in stories of old. However, while the accomplishments of these men are great, they use their strengths only for worldly gain through destructive means. As humanity becomes more focused on temporary, earthly gain, they unwittingly force out the eternal, beyond earthly aspects of life, with consequences. And Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide with humankind forever, in that he is also flesh, and his days shall be numbered one hundred and twenty years. The earlier departing spirit and thereby greatly shortened lifespans of men, who were previously, by the way, told to live past eight hundred years, symbolize the decay of the world as humanity grows farther from its original natural state. As a result of focusing only on earthly things, it is not only human lives that begin to collapse, but human societies as well 
is told that Noah alone was a righteous man who walked with God. Walking with God, peculiar word choice, in the language of the Bible is often explained as a surrender of one's will to instead live a life fulfillingly centered upon truth, goodness, and love. In modern language, the idea of walking with God can be compared to the leap of faith described by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, making a choice not to spend one's life hunched over books and searching for and analyzing the meaning of goodness, but rather choosing to actually live that spiritual life by goodness. In a contrasting yet harmonious reading, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson applies the biblical concept to individual psychology, stressing the importance of having a transcendent ideal to follow amidst chaos. And whether one chooses to focus on the spiritual, philosophical, or psychological elements of the story, what is undeniable is that Noah survives the chaos of the flood by focusing on something which exists outside of himself. Noah's choice to walk by the transcendent ideal of God is not only harmonious with both Kierkegaard's spiritual approach and Peterson's psychological one, it is directly responsible for both his survival and that of his family. As a result of his walking with God, Noah has not only chosen to lead his family through the flood, but has given instructions on how to ensure humanity's survival. By following the instructions given to him, Noah puts his belief into action and creates the beacon of order in a chaotic world. Indeed, when the flood comes, outside the ark, all of creation is indistinguishable. As the meaningful order set forth by God in the beginning becomes a formless swirl of meaningless matter. The flood then is a state of absolute confusion in which, outside the ark constructed by Noah, no true foundation can exist. And one will see soon in the ancient story of Gilgamesh how this imagery symbolizes far more than only water. The Epic of Gilgamesh is considered by many to be the oldest of humanity's great stories with the oldest versions dating back at least 4,000 years. Its hero, named Gilgamesh, is a king strikingly similar. Its hero, named, you guessed it, Gilgamesh, is a king strikingly similar to the giants in the earth discussed in Genesis. Also like those mysterious ancient men, Gilgamesh is driven by his selfish desires and becomes a tyrant in ruling his domain. Taking each young man into his army and taking each young woman into his bed on the night before her wedding. Gilgamesh is said to be two parts god and one part man, and as the king of Uruk, he uses his authority to only further inflate his self-image. It is only when he meets another man that proves to be his equal the wild man Ankidu, that Gilgamesh reconsiders his tyrannical rule, 
See, uncorrupted by society, Ankidu's intuition is enough to tell him that Gilgamesh is wrong. And what makes Ankidu different from the rest of Uruk, coming from beyond the city's walls, is that his strength allows him to challenge Gilgamesh physically, as well as his intuition enables him to challenge Gilgamesh morally. In a series of events which, believe me, deserve many of their own episodes, Ankidu challenges Gilgamesh to rethink his ways, and in time, the two develop a close friendship. Their bond becomes so strong that, years later, when Ankidu dies in battle, Gilgamesh feels the loss as the loss of a brother. Gilgamesh clings to Ankidu's body for days and enters a great depression. I weep for my brother. Oh, Ankidu, my brother, you are the axe at my side, my hand strength, the sword in my belt, the shield before me, a glorious robe, my fairest ornament. What is this sleep that holds you now? You are lost in the dark and cannot hear me. And yet, the mourning process does not heal Gilgamesh. Without his brother Ankidu by his side, Gilgamesh can find no peace, knowing that he too is mortal, and that Ankidu's fate will likewise be his own. Focused on this problem of his mortality, Gilgamesh remembers a legend, ancient even to him, of an immortal man who lived through a flood that once covered the world. So Gilgamesh, having been reformed of his tyrannical ways by Ankidu, and yet distraught by Ankidu's passing, journeys beneath the earth until he arrives at an ancient garden bordering the ocean. In this garden, the crossroads between the earth and the beyond, precious jewels grow on trees, and a tavern welcomes travelers between the worlds. Yes, even the gardens between heaven and earth have a bar at a rest stop. And as Gilgamesh approaches, the barmaid locks her doors. As his appearance has grown disheveled and tattered clothes from the long journey, convince her that Gilgamesh must be a criminal or some vagrant wanderer. Gilgamesh tells the woman named Siduri that he is the great king Gilgamesh on a quest for immortality. And shocked that this man, unshaven, long hair, with a face showing great despair, could possibly be the great king, Siduri answers him. Gilgamesh, where are you hurrying to? You will never find that life for which you are looking. When the gods created man, they allotted to him death. So Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh, bathe yourself in water, cherish the little child that holds your hand, and make your wife happy in your embrace. For this too, is the lot of man. But Gilgamesh is not satisfied and tells Siduri 
that he needs directions to the ancient man named Utnapishtim, who survived the flood. How can I be silent? How can I rest when Ankidu, whom I love, is dust, and I too shall die and be laid in the earth? Yet, when Gilgamesh finally reaches Utnapishtim, he does not receive some miraculous cure for death like he hoped. Perhaps, Utnapishtim says, human life is like a house which will one day crumble to dust. Or perhaps, it's like an insect which must shed the skin of its previous life in order to move on to something greater. Either way, Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh, he should take Sidori's advice and make the most of his life on earth because he cannot expect to live forever. To explain this to Gilgamesh, he tells his own story of surviving the Great Flood. Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh how, in a dream, he saw an argument between the gods. In the dream, the god of thunderstorms, Anlil, convinces the other gods to end life on earth, arguing that humans have become proud and overpopulated the earth so much that the gods can no longer sleep. Anlil is persuasive to all of the gods save for one, Ea, the god of peaceful waters. Rather than challenge Anlil directly, Ea sends the dream to Utnapishtim to warn him that Anlil will use his power over storms to flood the earth. Ea gives Utnapishtim detailed instructions build an ark to carry two of each animal on it so that life may survive the storm. Now it may be tempting to skip ahead thinking that you've heard this before. Rain falls, waters rise, the ark finds land. But trust me, what makes these stories worth telling side by side is the way that each man's outlook on life is changed. So in both stories, the day of the flood arrives. Torrential rains fall from above, while dams and levees break in the lands below. In his story, Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh of destruction so terrifying that even the gods themselves grew fearful. In both stories, the heavens seemed filled with a sense of regret seeing firsthand the immense suffering that was caused by the flood and the lives lost to it without even being given a chance for redemption. In the biblical story, God enters a covenant with Noah, promising to never again cause so much destruction. And likewise, at the end of the Gilgamesh flood story, Ea, who warned Utnapishtim of the flood, addresses the gods, convincing them to instead punish humans in small ways so that they can grow from suffering rather than be completely overcome by it. Turns out as noisy as we are, even the most stubborn gods agree with Ea that the world is better with humans in it. And as thanks to the man who helped save the earth, Utnapishtim is gifted immortality, and it is made clear that no other man will ever be given this privilege. 
So where the two stories are quite different, however, is the reaction of each man, that being Noah, and not Utnapishtim, but Gilgamesh's reaction upon hearing it. Returning to Noah's story, when the floodwaters subside, the pairs of light and darkness, sea and sky, land and water, once again are made distinct. Likewise, the colors of each light are distinct in the symbol of the rainbow which is gifted to him. And honoring the god that he's seen destroy and rebuild the world, Noah, upon landing, makes a sacrifices. In doing this, he offers the creations of the world back up to their creator, the source of their meaning. This is because Noah is able to see the problem with society before the flood was a focus only on the here and now, with no regard to transcendent values. That is to say, the society around Noah was entirely convinced that it was the source of all meaning. And by making a sacrifice to God, Noah takes an action that removes his will from the cosmic equation, a leap of faith, an understanding that God will create something better than Noah could ever gain from the sacrificial animal. Noah's new world becomes better than the old one, and he finds purpose in not bending the world to his own will, but rather in serving a greater force. Gilgamesh, on the other hand, did not come to Utnapishtim convinced of the superiority of his own will or attached to his earthly power. The friendship of Ankidu cured him of that tyrannical disease long ago. Instead, Ankidu's death is what sent Gilgamesh into a dark spiral, leading him to believe that there is no meaning on earth. Convinced that only the heavens can be meaningful, Gilgamesh sought out Utnapishtim, but learned that his immortality was a rare gift that cannot be earned, and that if Gilgamesh is to escape his depression, it must be done in this one life. However, Gilgamesh does leave his encounter with the ancient man, having learned that humanity has a major role to play in shaping the earth. On his journey back to his kingdom of Uruk, Gilgamesh thinks of the city's bricks, which were refined from dust into clay, and used by mortal men to build the city's powerful imposing walls, and its holy temples, and even its ordinary homes. Gilgamesh sees the work of men generations ago, and surely remembers that it is the work of one man which saved life on earth as we know it. And finally, looking at the city walls, Gilgamesh understands the link between heaven and earth. While he cannot know whether life continues in some form after death, it becomes clear to Gilgamesh that there is at least some element of humanity that can extend beyond the body's time. He sees that humanity's unique ability and indeed a fulfilling purpose is to give meaning to the matter of the earth. Gilgamesh does not resort to his tyrannical self-serving ways of old. Instead, 
he learns that his ability to change the world around him for the better allows him to be as much like the gods as a man can. And it is at this point that Gilgamesh grabs a tablet and a chisel and writes his story for future generations to hear. Noah and Gilgamesh are two of the most ancient names ever written. And the reason why they persist to this day is because their stories have proven to be so foundational to human culture. And though a parallel to Noah appears in the epic as Utnapishtim, it is Gilgamesh who learns a life-changing lesson from the Flood. Each man, Noah and Gilgamesh, encountered the confusion of a flooded world, the matter of earth cut off from the meaning imparted by heaven. In Noah's story, society's selfish corruption severed this link, plunging the world into chaos. For Gilgamesh, the link between meaning and matter was severed by the death of his friend and his following depression. Both men, however, end their stories with a greater wisdom and understanding than they began. Both men, however, end their stories with a greater wisdom and understanding than with which they began. Noah, in preparing sacrifices, recognizes what his society couldn't, that he must surrender his desires and trust in something greater than himself by offering the matter of creation back up to the source of its meaning. Gilgamesh, on the other hand, comes to recognize the crucial role that humanity has to play in shaping the world. Realizing, when he sees the city form from dust, that the heavens have no other hands on earth to act with, except for those of men. In offering matter up to the creative force of heaven, and forming creative ideas into reality, both Noah and Gilgamesh leave a better world ahead of them, as they each come to fulfill humanity's role as mediator of heaven and earth.